0: Luke 24, Jesus said to them, verse 44, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day Rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem you are my witnesses of these things Lord may we march out of here this afternoon being witnesses of these things because the tomb is open so must our mouths be as well we must go and tell so would you break open the smelling salts of your word before our nostrils and shock us again with the fact that on the third day, the tomb was empty. I pray that our faith would grow, that our love for one another's would increase, and that our passion to live for you In every part of our lives, even the smallest, most mundane, ordinary ways, Lord, would be impacted by the fact that Christ is risen indeed. So, Lord, we ask in this moment of breaking open your word for a fresh experience of resurrection power. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You can grab a seat. Well, today marks the anniversary of Restore Church launching regular or weekly services. Nine years ago today, we launched our first regular or weekly service. It was Easter Sunday, of course. Anybody remember where we did that at? Who here, who was with us at that time? Yeah, a few of you guys, a few of you guys. Grace Episcopal Church, just over on Rosa Parks or 12th Street. We had been doing some Bible studies there. Very, very sweet group of people, very hospitable, incredible building. And they let us, immediately following their Sunday morning service, have our opening service, Easter Sunday, in their beautiful sanctuary. It was a great time. But what was interesting about that is one of the lay leaders at Grace Episcopal Church, I just saw her, I think, a month ago, very sweet lady but does not believe that Jesus Christ rose literally from the dead. Some of you remember the conversations we would have with her. So it definitely, during that inaugural service, caught my attention when, as I was beginning my sermon, she stepped into the back of the sanctuary, sat down, and she listened to the message. And at the end of the message, she came up to me glowingly saying, Wow, Pastor Mike. That was a beautiful message. That was powerful. Thank you so much for sharing that. And so I thought to myself, knowing she doesn't believe in the resurrection, having just preached on the resurrection, uh, I must have missed the mark. Brenda, I didn't mean to say her name, but you guys know her anyway. Do you not realize that I just preached that he bodily, physically, literally did the Heisman on the grave on the third day and rose again from the dead? And she said, oh, yes, of course I understood you were saying that. I don't take it that way, but I still think it's beautiful. Now, unfortunately, that is not an uncommon view of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In 2017, there was a a poll done in London, BBC did it, among confessing Christians One out of every four confessing Christians in the UK, according to this study, does not believe that Jesus Christ rose again, literally, physically, bodily, from the dead on the third day. It's not an uncommon view, sadly, among those who confess Christ. And I've hit on something for a few weeks now called progressive Christianity, it's progressive, but quite frankly, it's, it's not Christianity. It's an old heresy decked out in a fresh set of clothes. And among progressive Christians, quotation marks, there is the view that the resurrection is actually rather inconsequential. You can have it, you can take it, or you can leave it or you can reject it. Some believe in it, some don't, but it really isn't that big a deal. And recently, one progressive Christian pastor was counseling the parents of the children in his congregation how to tell their kids the Easter story. And this is what he said, quote, the main point of the Easter story isn't whether or not Jesus Christ literally rose from the dead. We're missing the point, he said, if we're fighting over the historical accuracy of a bodily resurrection. And he finished that exhortation by saying this, stories don't have to be factual to speak truth. And the lights went out. (laughs) So, my question is this, does the resurrection really matter? And I want to answer that question with an irrefutable, unequivocal, crystalline yes from the Council of Sacred Scripture. We're going to look at a moral reason why it matters. We're going to look at a canonical reason why it matters. Then a historical reason why it matters. Then a soteriological reason, I'll explain that word in a minute, why it matters. A confessional reason why it matters. And yes, we have a head faith, but also a heart faith. Finally, an emotional reason why the resurrection matters. So number one, a moral reason. Let me put it down like this. Jesus is not a liar. Some of you have filled me in on something called Anon. Okay, I'm not very well versed in it. Let's say I said I think this whole QAnon thing is legit and I argue dogmatically that Donald Trump right now is serving as president from the alternate White House space of Key Largo. If I argue that, I don't think you would put much else into what else I said, right? In other words, that would sort of undermine my credibility. I wouldn't listen to myself after I said that. And yet, there are people who say it doesn't really matter whether Jesus Christ rose from the dead. What really matters is his teachings. Now to be as gracious and forbearing as I can, that is utterly inconsistent that is actually an untenable position for two reasons first of all did you know that part of jesus teaching was that he would rise from the dead in john chapter 2 he said destroy this temple and in three days i'm going to raise it up again now they had a beef with him and said this temple took 46 years to build but then john says no 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 he's not talking about a temple he's talking about his body And, in fact, he goes on to recount that when the disciples remembered what he said about tearing down the temple and raising it up on the third day, that he was talking about his resurrection and they believed him. Or how about this? The Pharisees, always trying to trap Jesus, one day said, give us a sign that you are who you say you are. And this is what he said. An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. I'm not giving you a sign, but I will give you this sign. That just as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights. So you have temple stuff, you got fish stuff, and how about this? You've got good shepherd stuff. John chapter 10, Jesus said, I don't don't think anybody's taken my life from me. I have power to lay down my life, and I have power to take it up again. And that's why just peppered through the gospel, you'll have stuff like in Matthew 16 and Matthew 17 where Jesus will say something like this, or or, or the commentator will say, from this time forward, Jesus began to teach that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, be killed, and rise again on the third day. It's all through the gospels. He taught it. In fact, he not only referenced his resurrection, he referenced his return because he said in the Olivet Discourse that the day is coming when the Son of Man is going to return in the clouds with great glory and majestic power. So, if you want to talk about receiving Jesus' teaching, a significant portion of his teaching is that he would what? Rise again. Now, second of all, just filling out this first point, that would mean that if jesus wasn't right on that that we ought to discount everything else he said just like that whole Anon thing right in other words you can't pick and choose can any of you guys think of a of a late christian uh, british writer who talked about how you can't cut and paste jesus anybody come to mind c.s lewis Most of you probably heard this this quote, but I'll share it for those who haven't. It's a good reminder for the rest of us. He said, Jesus is either, and you can fill this out, a liar or a lunatic or or the Lord. Now, this is what he said, quote, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis said, that is the one thing we cannot and must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. But let us not come with any of this patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So the first reason is a moral reason. You either accept all of what he taught, and that includes that he would rise from the dead, or at least be inconsistent and reject everything about him. But don't come with any of that patronizing nonsense that he's a great example and yet he's a liar because liars are not good examples (laughs) number one it matters because jesus is not a liar there's a moral reason second of all there's a canonical reason now what do i mean by canonical the canon of scripture is the 66 books of this sacred book called the bible 32 books in the Old Testament 27 in the New Testament and all through the 66 books of this Bible there were promises that Jesus Christ would in fact rise from the dead so for instance psalm 16 verse 10 you will not Abandon my soul to Sheol, the psalmist wrote prophetically. Nor will you allow your Holy One to suffer decay, to, to rot, to push daisies, to have maggots. He, he wouldn't decay. He went to decompose. And then in that epic passage of the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, you have these words. Verse 10, Isaiah 53, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, now listen to these words, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. That's a reference to the resurrection. Now, do you remember in the passage I just read and and Nick read it in its entirety, Luke 24, Jesus appears to the disciples. He's, He's been raised from the dead. And it says he began to teach from Moses and all the prophets concerning his resurrection. Don't you wish you were on that sermon, in none of that sermon? I wish we could somehow podcast that one. Because Jesus would show you that the entire Old Testament, he wasn't talking about the New Testament scriptures. The entire Old Testament prophesied that he would rise again on the third day. That's why, for instance, when Paul is standing before Caesar Agrippa in Acts 26, he says, hey, listen, I stand before you, the, the, the great, and I preach none other than that which the Old Testament prophets, prophets prophesied, that Christ would suffer and die. Or on Pentecost, Peter, he quotes Psalm 16, verse 10, which I just quoted in talking about how the Spirit is being poured out because Jesus was raised from the dead. His soul did not suffer this corruption. His body did not decay. And now he's ascended to the right hand of the Father. It's why Peter writes in 2 Peter 1 that the Old Testament prophets predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glory that would follow it's why paul says in second corinthians 120 that all the promises of god find their yes and amen in christ second corinthians 120. all i'm trying to say briefly with the second point is this the resurrection wasn't some story hatched by a bunch of people who then would write the new testament no, no, this ain't no Johnny come lately story the entire Scripture the entire canon that's why I say canonical reason the entire scriptures point it toward the resurrection of Jesus Christ and once you see it you see it Remember when Abraham was going to sacrifice his son his son didn't die. He, he got up. What a picture of the resurrection that is, right? So first of all it matters because Jesus is no liar. There's a moral reason Second of all it matters because there's a canonical reason the entire scripture promised it But third of all there's a historical reason you ready for this It actually happened it actually happened 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 6 tells us that Jesus wasn't seen just by a, a handful of people or even by the entire Apostolic company the 12 disciples No he was seen, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 6, by above 500 people at once. And when Paul wrote that, he said, most of which have not fallen asleep. In other words, you can go run them down and ask them, hey, did you see him? Yep, I did. And if you look at the rest of the New Testament, you will find that he wasn't just seen on one day by 500 people or even in, in one episode. There's at least 10 post-resurrection appearances of Jesus spread out over some 40 days. And they were so convincing. You take his brother James. You know, siblings don't believe anything with the other sibling, right? His half-brother James was quite skeptical. James became a believer. Or we've heard of that guy Thomas, right? Doubting Thomas, unless I put my finger into his wounds. Well, guess what? Jesus showed up to him. And it wasn't just like split-second episodes of fleeting him coming through and then gone. No, long enough for him to eat with them, long enough for them to probe his wounds, long enough for him to have an extended conversation and time of teaching. I'll say this. That is the reason why, to this very day, unbelieving skeptics... Atheists, agnostics, who are historians, philosophers, and other things, they almost unilaterally all agree that there was in history a man named Jesus who was crucified on a Friday, and that come Sunday, the tomb was empty. In fact, they will even agree that history records that this resurrected, this dead now made alive Christ was seen by myriads of witnesses on myriads of occasions and days. They will concede that. Of course, they have their explanations, right? Let me tick off a few of them. Probably the most famous explanation for that is they like to say That the disciples stole Jesus' body. Have you heard that? Now, that's crazy because 11 men died as martyrs. People don't die for lies like that. That's insanity. You say, well, people die for all kinds of things that aren't lies. Yes, but they believe those lies, right? If they stole the body, they knew it was a lie. And you don't have 11 people collective in their insanity to die for something that they know is a lie and what is more and i did i just recently read about this I, it never occurred to me that these were pious men right i mean they had their moments when peter had his, we all we have our moments right but they were pious men as old testament jewish believers coming to faith in christ they wanted to keep god's law so the last thing they're going to do is defile themselves against holy law by raiding a grave of an already prepared, already buried body. That would defile them. They wouldn't do that. And what's more, these men were changed. And it's a bit of a cliche. You've heard me say this before. I'll say it again. These men went from being a bunch of fraidy cats to some fearless cats. From guys who slunk away to the hills, right, who stood to the death to proclaim the name. One of the commentators had this hypothetical conversation. It is very hypothetical. I want you to listen to this. Somebody says in the apostolic band, hey, I know what we can do. We can steal his body and keep this thing going to make everybody think he's alive. Here's Here's the hypothetical. Somebody says. Great idea, guys. We can perpetuate this lie and then devote ourselves to spreading it everywhere and just think what's in it for us. Think about what we will gain for spreading this lie. Hatred, loss of income, beatings, oh yeah, mockery, that's great, loss of reputation, imprisonment, torture, execution. Wow, what a sweetheart of a deal. I'm all in. Let's go. Do you you see how that just melts away? And sometimes people say, well, no, actually, it wasn't the disciples that stole the body, it was the Roman soldiers. And they just wanted to clock in, get the job done, and get out. And there was there was a guard. They'd lose their lives. And you can read how, how that all plays out. But if that were the case in any way, shape, or form, then when this whole Jesus following thing started that the Roman authorities tried to put down in the book of Acts, they could have thwarted that movement simply by showing the body right. had they stolen it. But they couldn't show the body because they never stole it. He actually rose from the dead. So, no, nah, no, nah, that, that, that melts away, that, that whole rob the body theory, stolen body. But how about this? There's, a, there's called the swoon theory. The swoon theory says that he was just unconscious. He swooned out of consciousness, right? He was passed out, but he wasn't really dead. Like, come on, baby, that, that melts away too. Not every person who went to the cross was scourged by a cat of nine tails, but those who were didn't barely make it to the cross alive. You lost so much blood. You know about that process. I've talked about that. And then when he went to the cross those Roman soldiers were pretty good at their deathly trade of execution They know how to kill a man And in fact if he wasn't dead by sundown on the Sabbath they would break his legs So that would just expedite the whole death process They didn't even break Jesus legs, but you know what they did do They ran a spear through his lungs and through his heart. Let me run a spirit through your lungs or heart, you who say he just swooned, and see if you swoon or not, right? And listen, when they carried his body away, they would have detected at least a faint pulse and said, whoa, he's breathing, right? That melts away. And then there's another foolish theory. It's called the hallucination theory. That really what happened is people wanted him to rise from the dead so badly, they had a hallucination that he rose. Like, maybe one person, but all 12 of them, or, or 500? <laughs> and all at different times? You're trading one miracle for a whole bunch of other miracles, really. And if you look into this matter of having hallucinations, people will say whether it was uh, something just because of a mental illness or because of some, some drugs that you were taking, that later on people could look back and say, oh, no, that wasn't real. That was just a an hallucination. And that is why in the face of all the mounting, the, tr- the evidence, many atheists, many skeptics, many unbelievers have come to faith in Jesus Christ seeking to debunk this resurrection. Uh, across every vocational uh, uh, Job Uh, uh, Journalists you ever heard of Lee Strobel? He actually lives he's still living. He was a journalist in Chicago. His wife became a Christian. He said it drove him nuts He felt like he lost his wife to Jesus So he said I'm gonna put my journalistic skills to work and debunk this whole thing and show her that she's just following a lie And in the process of doing that he was gloriously saved He's written books about that or Um, Sir William Ramsey, a few hundred years ago, he was an archaeologist. And he said, quote, the Bible is a book of fables. And he was pretty outspoken about that. But after 25 years of research and digs in Asia and the Middle East, he shocked the intellectual world when he said, no, the Bible is true and Christ is alive and I'm following him. Because his research confirmed that. I could just go on and on and on. There's a guy named um, si- Dr. Simon Greenleaf. He was the um, royal professor of law at Harvard in, in the late 1700s when um, when naturalism was hitting uh, both America and Britain and other places, saying there really wasn't such thing as miracles. Like, you know, Thomas Jefferson, he didn't believe in miracles. He cut all the miracles out of the Bible. They, that was kind of the atmosphere. He imbibed that, and he said... <laughs> The fact that Jesus rose from the dead and, and Christians believe that, they're believing a hoax. So his specialty was the law of evidence. And he kind of put his skill set to work to disprove the resurrection, and he ended up writing a book called this, The Examination of the Testimony of the Four Evangelists by the Rules of Evidence Administered in the Courts of Justice. In the old times, they used long titles for their books. <laughs> and this is what he concluded. He concluded. It is impossible that the apostles could have persisted in affirming the truth they had narrated had not Jesus Christ risen from the dead. He became a believer. I just mentioned C.S. Lewis. He became a believer through that liar, lord, lunatic thing. I could go into Isaac Watts. We sing some of his hymns from time to time. He was a philosopher and a scientist. He did not believe. He, came, he ended up believing. I could just add, 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 add evidence to why he's alive. I'll end with this, this third point which I think is my longest point, so relax, okay? You're gonna, you'll get to your Easter dinner. Do you know who the first two witnesses of the resurrection were? Women. You can go to Act, um, Matthew 28. It's Mary and the other Mary, Mary Magdalene. Say, what's the big deal about that? Let me tell you what the big deal about that is. Do you know who could not stand in a legal court for witness witness? In in, in first century Palestine, and still, by the way, in the better part of the world, larger part of the world, women could not. Women could not bear formal witness, formal evidence in a court of law in that time, in that place. So what's the big deal? The big deal is this. If somebody was trying to fabricate a resurrection story and write about it, some supporting documents, the last people they would have to be as the first witnesses would be women. They would have men, they would have men, right? Who could be established as formal witnesses. So why is it written that way? Because it actually happened that way. That's why. Which tells me two things as an aside: of the authority of scripture. And number two how Christianity elevates the dignity of women. There is a difference between misogyny, that's unbiblical, and biblical patriarchy. That is true. That is false. I don't have time to go that direction. But it is no accident that the first witnesses of the resurrected Christ were women. There is a historical reason, third of all. It actually happened. Now fourth of all, there's a soteriological reason. What does that mean? I got to go play Scrabble now. I'm trying to use something called assonance, okay? Uh, Moral, um, then you have canonical, historical, soteriological, okay? All that means the doctrine of soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. Simply put, it's this. There is no salvation apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There is no salvation. People who say that the resurrection is no big deal, you can take it or leave it, but it's really a moot point, have reduced Christianity to yet another world human religion of works, of moralism. Only in this case, Jesus is the example you're to follow. For some of you, it might be Buddha or Confucius or Joseph Smith or, or Mary Eddie Baker, whoever else. And our flavor of human works religion is just follow the example of Jesus. It doesn't really matter where he rose from the dead. It just matters what he taught. Now, Alyssa Childers has done some great work on progressive Christianity. She talks about being deconstructed in her faith and then reconstructed. She was a member of a band called Zoe Girls, which I have no idea who they were. Um, But through her experience, had her faith broken down and then built back up on the historic truth of the cross and resurrection. And this is what she writes about progressive Christianity. With a lowered view of the Bible and a rejection of the atonement, the next domino to fall will naturally be the resurrection. If sin doesn't separate us from God... And Jesus didn't really need to die to reconcile us to the Father. We're already good with God. His physical physical resurrection then becomes a bit of a moot point. You can take it or you can leave it. Now, that is a far cry from Paul's word in 1 Corinthians 15. This is what he says. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain. And so is your faith. And if Christ has not been raised, he repeats, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So there's a soteriological reason. If Christ ain't raised, you're still dead in sin and so am I. So the question would be, why does Christ not being raised from the dead mean that you and I would still be in our sin? Can we have a moment of confession here? How many here, and some of you don't even know what a checkbook is, okay? The Venmo and all this other stuff. Some of us do. How many here have ever had a check bounce? We're taking names, okay? (laughs) That check bounced because you had insufficient funds you could do the most beautiful check with all the nice little artwork on it like people do and a beautiful signature that don't matter if you don't have the funds it's gonna boom, bounce the resurrection of jesus christ showed that that check did not bounce that when he rose from the dead he as a fully 100 percent human as a man he could take our place and stand in our place But being 100% fully God, he could actually pay the price. Because it says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The paycheck for sin is death. He paid the penalty and he rose from the dead declaring, I've got more than sufficient funds. And he conquered sin and death and hell and Satan of bearing the righteous wrath of God against our sin. So the resurrection proves not only this, that payment was accepted, but check this out, that righteousness could be gifted. Because Paul says in Romans 4 and verse 5, he was delivered for our offenses and then, bam, raised again for our justification. So I can say, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. So the gospel includes the resurrection The resurrection is not an optional addendum, take it or leave it, additional component. Paul said, I delivered unto you that which is of first importance, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and then he was raised again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And Romans 1 verse 4 says, he was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. So I'm just laying out for you a fourth reason. There is no salvation apart from the resurrection, but because he rose from the dead, you can be saved. Now I want to get personal here. Fifth of all, there's a confessional reason. That you, if you will, in saving fashion, in a real deal way, know Christ as your savior, you must believe he rose from the dead. Because it says in Romans 10 and verse 9 that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, and you believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead, you'll be what? You'll be saved. You'll be what? You'll be saved. The, ex- the implication, I should say the exploitation, I don't think that's a word, but the point is if you don't believe in your heart he's been raised from the dead, you will not be saved. You gotta believe that to be saved. And I think one of the reasons the gospel is so beautiful is that it is an equalizer on two radical levels. Every human being without exception is in need of the gospel. All are equally lost. Humans, we're really good at playing a lot of games. The biggest game we like to play when it comes to reference to our standing before God is the comparison game. We compare who we are to justify ourselves as we put others down. And human beings will use anything, right, to play that comparison game. Anything. Where you live. What you look like, so your zip code, your ethnicity, your bank account, what you have experienced or what you've experienced and other people haven't experienced, what's in your wallet, what you do, on and on and on and on. Our self-justifying hearts will find just about anything to justify ourselves. And yet the scripture comes along and just levels us all. God lowers the boom in Romans 3.23. says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So, big deal. That's your ethnicity. Big deal. That's what you have in your wallet. Big deal. That's what you do for a living. Big deal. That's what you, who, who, who gives a rip when it comes to that? And that's why, by the way, if I, th- I think if the church is going to experience true revival, we got to get back to that baseline that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of god the resurrection testifies of that unequivocal equalizer but second of all that anyone can call upon the name of the lord and be saved anyone look at romans chapter 5 i'm sorry romans chapter 10. The apostle says in verse 12, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord over all, despising his riches, I'm sorry, not despising, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. And now these words, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How many people call upon the name of the Lord? How many people? Anyone, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved for everyone. And that is why, church, we need to read. I got to wrap this up, but I am. We need to return to evangelism. We need to return to the primacy of evangelism. Because the tomb is open, so must our mouths be. Let me ask you a question. When is the last time you declared the gospel to somebody? The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the good news of somebody. Can I ask you that? Can you take a moment just to think about that? I am not trying to leave you in guilt, really. For one is, guilt-driven evangelism may get to the front door, but it's not going to last any farther past that, right? And for another thing, by the grace of God, Jesus has cleansed me even of the sin of not opening my mouth when I should have. Praise God for that. So, I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on anybody, it would include myself. But it's not bad sometimes to see, feel a little friction, right? A little unease, right? Maybe a little angst. A little discomfort because it's that discomfort that leads to transformation in every, any realm of life. You do not like the present circumstance. You say something's got to change. And to the degree that we are not collectively and individually sharing the good news of Jesus, I want us to feel a little bit of unease, a little bit of angst. A little bit of discomfort because how shall they hear unless somebody be sent? We're in a season in America where people are talking about so many different things in the church and some of which we need to come back and address, as I said the last few weeks, because they are either distorting or even deleting the gospel. But we must keep first things first. The first thing first is we must declare the gospel that's the bottom line. Look at the gospel logic starting in verse fourteen. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how beautiful! How are they to preach unless they're sent? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? You might have some nasty feet, but if they're bringing the gospel, they're beautiful feet. We're called to be a church of beautiful feet. Not just to play church in here, but to have beautiful feet. So I just want to say to whoever here, have you ever truly confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Because what a great day for you to come alive in Christ would be on the day that he came alive for your salvation. The resurrection, putting together the fifth and sixth reason, the soteriological reason, the confessional reason, the resurrection is what makes it a reality that you can be saved. But I end end up these two points with this. The resurrection not only guarantees the salvation for all who believe, it guarantees destruction for all those who don't. Because in Acts chapter 17, Paul's on Mars Hill, and at the end of that sermon he says, but God now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained, whereas he has given assurance to all men in that he raised them from the dead. And here's the response. Some mocked, (laughs) foolishness. Some believed, and some thought a little bit more. So which one are you? Believing, mocking? I want to think some more about it. Now the final reason that the resurrection matters is an emotional reason. Let's not be scared of talking about our emotions. Have you ever buried a loved one? Anybody here buried a loved one? We all have. Have you ever miscarried a baby? Several of you ladies have. Have you ever seen a loved one slowly, slowly, slowly physically fade away to a shell of themselves before you put them in a box in the ground? Has you ever had that happen? You know, when that happens, we need more than good wishes. It'll be okay. What the rip you're talking about It's going to be okay? He's in a box right there. He's over in a cemetery. I pass her every time I get on I-75. It's going to be okay? We need more than good intentions. We need more than good wishes. We need good news. And the good news is that the Son of God, as our representative, was laid in the ground. And on the third day, he stepped out of that dust, living God of living God. He got back up. And he is called the first fruits of the resurrection for everyone who believes. And because he got up out of the grave, we too will get up out of the grave. And that's why Christians often have on their headstones, in hope of the resurrection. Now, hope there does not mean some wishy-washy. I kind of hope this happens. We'll see. Uh, biblical hope is a confident expectation. Oh, death, where is our sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. He is alive. There's a moral reason. Jesus is not a liar, a canonical reason. The whole Bible promised it. Historical reason, it actually happened. A soteriological reason, there's no salvation without it. A confessional reason, you must believe it to savingly call upon the name of the Lord. And there's an emotional reason, that alone can carry the day when the valley is deep. The truth of Christianity stands on an open grave. You can't take it or leave it. You must receive it. Alyssa Childers, one more time, says Jesus was raised from the dead or he wasn't. Christianity is true or it isn't there is no my truth when it comes to God So, how do you need to respond to this message family? How do you need to respond I'm not asking how the some friend needs to or somebody next to you or somebody maybe online or somebody even think how do you need to respond? How can the fact that the grave is empty change the way you do life this afternoon? Pastor friend had a stranger call him, brothers, you can come. And the guy was inquiring to my pastor friend about, hey, is your church having Easter services? And just a few minutes on the phone with that guy, he was able to discern that that guy was just a ball of nerves. So anxious about everything. So my friend said, sir, how can I pray for you? This is what the man said. I have not been to church since February of 2020. This COVID-19 has got me really scared. I'm afraid to leave my house, but I know I can't continue to live this way. Would you please pray for me?" And my friend shared with him the glorious promise of 2 Timothy 1-7 that God has not given us a spirit of fear but of power and of love and a sound mind. And what gives teeth to 2 Timothy 1.7 is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. Because life's going to give you a lot of fears. But Jesus says, don't fear him who can destroy your body, including a virus or accident or something else. Fear him who can destroy both your body and soul in hell. But Jesus then stepped in the way and paid the check and proved it when he rose from the dead. Because the reality is, we don't, we don't have any certainty in life, right? You don't know if your vehicle's gonna be totaled this week or if loved ones will be in the vehicle when it's totaled. You don't know what the doctor's gonna say about you. You don't know what's gonna happen in your life in a relationship. You don't know, but you have this certainty that Jesus Christ. Conquered sin death hell disease sickness and it all and rose again from the dead And therefore he says you can be steadfast Immovable always abounding in the work of the lord for as much as you know your labor in the lord is not in vain Thanks be to god father. Thank you so much for this glorious truth that jesus is alive And I pray that your spirit would connect the dots from that truth to every heart here that the truth That Jesus was alive would change the way we do our life. Paul said that I might know him, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings. Spirit, please move. Please move. Please put the pedal to the metal and move. Move in my heart so this truth is a greater reality, a greater motivator to live for you. And ask this in Jesus' name, Amen.